Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. All right. Hello and welcome, everyone. Come one, come all. Step inside the China shop. We're opening up today. I'm Shopkeeper Dan. With me, as always, is Kyle, creator of FinancialNeptitude.com. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing good. Doing good. How about yourself? You feeling better? I am. I'm feeling physically better. Yes, yes. <laughs> no it wasn't your third bout with COVID? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, maybe it was. I, I don't know. <laughs> I uh, am pleased to welcome to the shop today, Jonathan Baird from the Global Investment Letter. How are you doing today, Jonathan? I'm, uh, I'm fine, and I'm very happy to be with you today. All right, Jonathan, uh, also over the past 25 or had 25 year career as a money manager, he ra- uh, managed three different funds, uh, three different number one ranked funds. I'm looking That's at right. my notes here. Yeah. And you won a Lipper Award. That's pretty yeah. impressive. Well, you know, I guess if you stay around long enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, which funds did you run? Um, well, um, back in the uh, in the nineties, um, I was with a mutual fund company called Dynamic Funds, and mm-hmm. I ran um, what was called the Dynamic uh, uh, Growth Fund, and then I I also managed a, another Dynamic Fund that was more focused on Canada and the dynamic growth fund was basically a go anywhere type of uh mutual fund and mm-hmm. um I had a I had a good deal of success with that I uh over the 5 years that I I uh ran it uh, it was essentially the number one uh fund over that period wow and then more and then more recently um I was with a uh I was a partner in a startup uh mutual fund company back 10, 15 years ago. And I won the uh, Alipra Award for uh, the Next Gen um, Global Equity Fund, which was basically, as the name suggests, uh, just a, a global equity fund. And that was the number one fund in Canada in 2010. Hmm. And then way back in, in, in the 80s, when I was just getting started, uh, I had a small cap fund that uh, Ended up being, I think, number one in nine, way back in 1989. So, and wow. I had just been managing money. I had just been managing money for a couple of years at that point. So it sounds like you don't even like stick with any one like sector or segment. It sounds like you kind of do it all: small cap, large cap, growth. That's absolutely that's absolutely true. Um, I, you know, I made a conscious uh, effort right from the beginning when I got interested in investing to be a generalist. And mm-hmm. I and I would recommend that uh, for anybody that can that has the interest or has the time to develop that skill, because I think the broader the broader your investment landscape, the more perspective it gives you, the more context it provides, and also I think just as a function of looking at a wider canvas, so to speak, 
you're going to be open to to more opportunities. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of reasons why it's important not not to get pigeonholed or too too micro focused if you can avoid it. So the more you learn, the better off you'll be rather than trying to focus on one thing and get good. Well, I you know, I think you can do the I think you can do both things. Mm-hmm. I think that uh one of the key things is learning as much as as you can and developing uh, a skill set of of evaluating uh investments and though and those principles or those skills can then be applied to um you know to whatever kind of market that you're looking at mm-hmm. uh, that's certainly sort of what seemed to be the case for me as i you know as i developed as a as an investor uh, over the years so did you uh, did you go to school for any of this or did you just kind of have to learn it all on your own no no i uh you know i i i got i went to business school and then i got a char- then i got a cfa designation mm-hmm. but yet yet so uh you know i i learned sort of principles of accounting and finance in business school, but then you know, in terms of learning about being an investor, uh, experience is a is a is an essential element. So basically, I started my career uh, as an analyst uh, with an insurance company, mm-hmm. which is kind of a typical starting point. And then after a couple of years, uh, I got shipped off to the London office to to look at uh, European stocks for a little while. And then when I came back, they gave me a, a small amount of money to run in a small cap fund. Mm-hmm. And I started actually managing money professionally probably six months before the 1987 crash. Ooh. So I've got I've got a clear <laughs> I've got a clear memory <laughs> of, of, of that day in my mind. So, uh, yeah, but but I, I will say that even though I went to business school and the CFA and so on, and, and you know, that was an important component. There's no replacement also for just reading a lot and absorbing as much about investing in the world as you can, because you'd be surprised at what little bit of knowledge that you put in the back of your head may may turn out to be uh, very useful months or even years later. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely attest to that. One of the things that's always surprised us, I think, as we kind of started this this podcast and this journey is just how many people have different styles and that they work. So there's many different things that work. It's just about finding something that works for you is what it seems like. I, I, I think that's very true. And I, and I think in my case, my style has evolved uh, over the years fairly considerably. When I when I first started out, I was a diehard value investor, mm-hmm. and uh, you couldn't get more va- value focused than I was when I was, you know, in my in my twenties. But then, <laughs> as I as I moved along in my career and started managing uh, more money mm-hmm. uh, and got exposed to more markets and so on, my approach started to uh, branch out. And I started to incorporate more uh, macro uh, considerations in my uh, yeah, in my investing. Mm-hmm. And uh, as time went on, uh, even though I I, I kept the, the value principles because I think they're legitimate. Uh, at the same time, I also recognize that uh, the main drivers of markets tend to be things like investor sentiment. The interest rate environment, geopolitics, and so on, mm-hmm. and and that is what I write about in the global investment letter, 
as well as writing about my own positions in the markets and why I why I have them and so on. Uh, speaking of the global investment letter, how did you kind of come about to that? I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty good career managing, uh, you know, funds. Yeah. Did you just well, just get well, tired of it one day or what? Well, you know what what happened was that uh, the last stop before the global investment letter uh, that I was at, as I mentioned, I was a I was a partner in a startup mutual fund company. Mm-hmm. And we ended up getting bought out by a French uh, uh, merchant bank. Oh, so then French. I had so then I had to decide <laughs> what then I had to decide sort of what to do, and uh, you know I decided uh, going to manage my own money. Uh, there's less ha- there's less hassle that way, but also um, I, I thought that there would be a uh, uh, a need and a value for something like the global investment letter. And I got that idea from a number of posts that I put up that I wrote on, on LinkedIn. Really? And, LinkedIn. And, and the feedback from LinkedIn was, was very gratifying and surprising to me at the time. And people were uh, messaging me and so on, asking if, you know, there was a, you know, a, a larger, uh, uh, publication that, or that I was writing, or whether there was a a, a paid version of, of of my comments, and uh, there wasn't at that time. But that gave me the idea for the global investment letter, and then that, uh, and then sort of that became the global investment letter. And uh, now I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy and surprised to say that you know I've got their subscribers uh, all over the world, literally. I think hmm. five of the seven continents uh, there uh, are subscribers. You must have had one hell of a, a post that you put up on LinkedIn then, because a lot of the things I see on there don't make me wonder if this guy has more to say. <laughs> well, it was it, it was a series of posts, yeah. and uh, you know it was probably ten or twelve, and you know I was talking about um, I was talking about the markets, you know, based on my own experience managing money and so on. And I would try and put up um, what I thought was an interesting graphic and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that tended to resonate with people. And, I, and I'll still, um, you know, I still, um, I still put up uh, uh, the odd post on LinkedIn uh, now just to share, you know, to share my thoughts with people and, uh, there's certainly there's certainly no shortage of things to be talking about these days, <laughs> right? What's your take on the the Ukraine situation? Apparently, well, as of this afternoon, apparently Macron, uh, the president of France, says he's had some kind of a diplomatic breakthrough with Putin. Mm. Uh, I, I I I've got sort of uh, mental images of uh, Neville Chamberlain coming back from talking with. With Hitler, right. so I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if anything is going to come of that. I think that there's assuming that the Macron thing, you know, isn't isn't going to work uh, or didn't happen. I, I think there's a reasonable chance that that uh, Russia will uh, move in on on the Ukraine. I think that probably it'll happen either late February or early March, wow. because I, I, I think that Putin doesn't want to get in the way of China's Olympics, considering that China and, oh. and Russia are quite tight these days. So he doesn't want to steal the spotlight from that. 
And then um, if he waits too long and the ground starts to thaw in the right. uh, in the Ukraine, it makes moving uh, yep. moving tanks a bit more challenging. Yeah, it just turns everything turns to mud, right? So I think if it's going to happen, it'll be sort of late February, early March. You know, let let's hope for the best. But well, all Ukraine has to do is not join NATO, and I think uh, I think tensions ease. <laughs> Isn't that like kind of the main? Well, yeah, and the thing is, they're not—they're not—you um, know—they're not members of NATO, and I don't think NATO had any plans on on oh. uh, ha- you know having them join. But at the same time, you can't have a third party telling you who or who you can or cannot invite into your organization, <laughs> right? So uh, you know, uh, so his demand. There was no way um, the West could have just capitulated to his uh to his demands uh, because th- they wouldn't stop there i get the feeling when i think of putin it makes me think of uh you ever see the movie canadian bacon uh no i haven't <laughs> oh okay well the president of the united states is uh played by alan alda and uh his ratings are in the tank so he, this is after the cold war has ended so he brings the russian president back he's trying to get the trying to get the old you know cold war thing going again so he can drum up his supporters yeah <laughs> i get the feeling that like putin is just, like itching for the glory days of the cold war well you know he he actually said that the biggest the biggest geopolitical uh uh set, you know uh setback of the 20th century was the collapse of the soviet union mm-hmm. So he probably does miss the old days. Cause well, he, he, I mean, I would assume he would say that. That's kind of a big deal for him. <laughs> well, it was. And, you know, he was in the KGB in those days yeah. and everything. So, you know. So what, else do, you, what else do you talk about in the, uh, the investment letter? Well, you know, I, I, uh, what, I, what I do is I, I offer my comments on the major equity, um, equity and currency, commodity and bond markets. So, you know, I'll, I'll talk about... In, the uh the february issue just got uh published uh late last uh thursday on the 3rd mm-hmm. and so you know some topics that i was talking about in that issue was inflation uh prospects for interest rate increases i did touch on the ukraine issue um and uh and you know investor sentiment uh is an important uh uh, factor to uh, to be aware of on an ongoing basis because ultimately, you know, I, I think that it, it may be the number one uh, driver of markets is just investor sentiment because that does explain why we have the you know runaway bull markets and mm-hmm. market crashes that seem to 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 go to levels that don't make any sense. How do you track the investor sentiment? Um, there's 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 a variety of of different things uh, that I've picked up, you know, over the years. Um, you can look at the volatility index, the VIX, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is a uh, you know which is a useful measure of of investor sentiment as vo- as uh, you know as volatility rises, uh, that tends to correlate strongly with with rising um, uh, investor concerns. Right. There's there's anecdotal evidence. Uh, you look at you even look at things like magazine covers. Uh, <laughs> if if, if uh, well, not, I know that sounds funny, but it's true that like huh. back ba- back late last year, uh, there were a couple of covers uh, that were talking about the Roaring Twenties. That basically the 
2020s were going to be like the 1920s and, you know, the markets are going to be a party for the next nine or 10 years and so on. So I just take note of that kind of overt bullishness and so on. Mm. And when when the bull, bullishness or bearishness gets too extreme, then I, then I, I start looking for indications that I should start going the other way. Right. You know? I was going to so, say, if everybody was... If the majority was right, nobody would lose money in the crashes. <laughs> well, that's right. So, so you're looking for, you know, in my case, you know, I'm looking for market extremes or economic extremes, just extremes of any sort, and taking note of them. Mm-hmm. And then I'm look, then I'm watching to see if I can match that sort of contrary view with a. Uh, uh, a definite sort of sell or buy signal, mm-hmm. uh, and that, and that's part of the methodology that I've developed over the years. Which you know, I, I I sort of think of it as trying to be as as pragmatic as possible, and you know, on balance, it, it you know, it's it's worked over the years. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan, do you have any questions? Um, you know, just. Uh, <laughs> Really, really interested in in <laughs> geopolitical events and how it can affect markets. Uh, what are what are some some setups kind of <laughs> stuff that goes into your newsletter? Like like is it is it just like going through the news, or do you have prescriptions? Like now it's a good time to get into defense stocks because Ukraine looks like they're about to go to war. Yeah, I mean, I, I will. In fact, um, uh, defense the defense sector has been a long term theme. Uh, in the global investment letter, hmm. it doesn't mean I always own the uh, defense stocks because I'm also looking at at the market uh, price action of the sector. And so, uh, if I, you know, uh, I'll, I'll I'll stay in this in the uh, defense sector. Let's say as long as I think the defense sector is acting well. Um, for example, uh, I was you know, I did very well in the defense sector. Up until I sold in March, um, in March 2020, um, I I got quite concerned about uh, COVID um, mm-hmm. uh, fairly early on, and I started following it. And in the March 5th issue of the Global Investment Letter, I I said that this is going to be a major uh, economic um, uh, issue, and I recommended people. Sell their uh, sell equities and go into uh, and go into uh, U.S. Treasuries, and so I when I sold the uh, my holdings in defense at that point, uh, I have yet to actually repurchase them um, because the price action of the sector just didn't seem to warrant it. Um, mm-hmm. If we uh, see some sustained military conflict in Europe. That might change because the defense sector is improving in terms of relative strength versus the S and P 500, uh, and and certainly a consideration of geopolitics uh, will be a factor in uh, you know making a decision about defense stocks and so on. So that is you know that so that is that is a consideration. Uh, I think that the uh, situation in Ukraine. Is a, a major component to the current strength that we're seeing in the price of oil, mm-hmm. because um, uh, Russia uh, controls about forty percent of the 
energy requirements of of uh, Western Europe yep. through pipelines and so on. So, th- so these concerns about Russia's actions and the potential for Russia to reduce or even cut off the pipelines to to Europe, uh, you know, in the middle of winter, is having an effect on on uh, on oil prices and so on. So, geopolitics can. Uh, can have a, a fairly sharp effect. They're 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 typically not terribly long lasting, but they can be very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about price action, but now you talked about oil, so now I want to ask you about that. <laughs> um, yeah. Oil has been steadily marching up to a hundred dollars a barrel after I think I think it was sometime last year. Russia was predicting that, and with Russia controlling so much of the supply, uh, if they think it's going to happen, then they have the power to you know push it towards that. Uh, do you see the the rise in oil prices continuing, or is that something that you think will abate at some point here soon? I I think it probably will abate if uh, the geopolitical situation calms down, mm-hmm. and I think it's also uh, the fact that we're we're probably going to see uh, interest rate increases is probably going to impact uh, uh, the global economy, which is already, to my mind demonstrating signs of weakness. I mean, the Chinese economy is definitely slowing. Uh, Germany is in a recession. I think Japan, if I'm not mistaken, the last quarterly GDP number I saw was actually negative. So the global economy is already slowing. And uh, if, if that is coupled with rising interest rates, then uh, a further slowing of the global economy should presumably affect demand, which should then therefore result in lower oil prices. But if geopolitical issues uh, remain elevated, whether, whether it's in the Ukraine or there's some issue in the Middle East with Iran or something, mm-hmm. then, then you know, we could see you know, continued high oil prices. Oil is the commodity that over you know historically has been the most susceptible to geopolitical shocks mhm that kind of makes sense too considering how many major producers they are in the locations that they're in well the, uh, yeah most of the major producers uh you know are are in relatively unstable parts of the world right yeah venezuela the middle east exactly even africa you know nigeria yep. and so on so um, let's see. Okay. So now you mentioned price action a minute ago. Does that mean that you, uh, when you say price action, are you talking about like technical analysis or are you uh, looking at something else? Well, well sort of. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it used to be called, I guess in the old days, it would have been called the tape, but the tape's mm. not really around uh, anymore because everything's electronic. But basically it's, it's how the markets, <laughs> uh, the markets behave. And, and I guess, you know, there is a component to technical uh, analysis in that as well, and so uh, typically, what I do is, you know, I, I I I have a view of the world, and then I watch to see if the market ends up confirming my view of the world or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think a good example of this is I've been, you know, I was I've been very concerned about uh, uh, the global economy and and the the potential catalysts. For volatility in 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 equity markets, for a while, like mm-hmm. probably you know w- over a year, but uh, 
I did not sell my long positions last year, despite my 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 bullish view, my, my bearish view of the of the macros, because the price action of the um, of the markets in 2021 did not, to my mind, signal a um, signal a, you know a, a, a sell indication. So that actually allowed me, and I and I wrote it. I wrote it probably a couple of times in the global investment letter last year. I said, you know, I've, there's never been a year where I've been so basically bearish when I've made so much money on the long side. <laughs> and so I waited. Uh, now that's that. You know, that started the, that started the change late last year and in January. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I st- you know I uh, I started to uh, reduce uh, some of my uh, or eliminate some of my long positions. Um, one of the things that I'm an advocate of is using protective sell prices or sell stops, mm-hmm. and uh, as a way to as a way to control risk. But at the same time, it you know where you where you put those uh, sell stops or sell prices is important too. And yep. there is an element of technical analysis, and plus my experience as a money manager that. You know that guides me in terms of where to to put them, and that's one of the things I talk about in the global investment letter. Is I share with people, you know, sort of, you know, what my market positions are, and I'll also talk about, you know, well, I've, you know, I've got a sell price here, and you know, if the market gets down to this level, I, you know, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, th- there's a bit of an art to that because. You know, you don't want to be whipsawed all the time. You have you have to uh, let markets have a bit of room to move, but at the same time, you don't want to uh, linger when there's a been a change of trend. And right. so, um, help you know, sort of setting m- those those sell price levels and so on is you know my my experience uh, over the years is you know sort of has helped me sort of develop a feel for that. Doesn't mean, of course, that I'm, you know, I'm I'm right or I'm perfect all the time, but you know, the experience does does uh, pay off. Well, yeah, this is a game of odds, right? You you know what? I'm glad you said that because that's exactly uh, that's exactly true. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, and I think that that a lot of investors sometimes uh, forget that mm-hmm. it is a game of odds. You're dealing in probabilities, not certainties. And so you can't expect to be perfect. What you what you try and do is just get your batting average, so to speak, as high as you can, and make sure that you know when you win, you win more than than you lose when you lose. Right. And uh, so probability is a big uh, is a big uh, factor uh, in the way I look at markets. I try and attach probabilities to different outcomes and so on as a way to sort of guide my decision making. And uh, so you, that's a very good point you made. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, that might not be a bad idea whenever you're looking at trade ideas to assign a confidence metric to it. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, once again, you know, everything comes, you know, everything gets uh, a bit a bit easier with experience. But I can tell you, you know, the markets that we've had for the last couple of years are certainly not been uh, easy for me, but I've enjoyed the challenge in, in trying to figure them out. Uh, but well, certainly- All you got to do is buy and hold for the last year. <laughs> I think that's changing now though. 
Yeah, until that doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you, you can talk to somebody that's long Facebook. Uh, yeah, you know, yep. <laughs> Peloton. Yeah. So, you know, so, yeah. So, anyway, but, I mean, you know, uh, trying to think in terms of probabilities is a very good idea. And I, mm-hmm. I, certainly, I certainly do that. Oh, uh, you mentioned interest rate hikes uh, a minute ago. Um, I've been seeing anywhere from like four to I think B of A is predicting seven is I think they're the the highest. Uh, what are your thoughts on that as far as how many hikes we're going to get this year? I have a hard time seeing five or six or seven interest rate hikes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is I think that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think global economy is 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 pretty fragile as it is without interest rate hikes. Right. And I think that I think the effect of the first or second interest rate hike uh, may be dramatic enough that that it may scare uh, central banks from raising rates uh, much further. Mm. You don't think it's already priced in? Well, I mean, the consensus is more and more. Uh, I, I I think what it is is that uh, if you raise rates a couple of uh, times. Uh, or even three times, whatever it takes, and you start seeing uh, evidence of a of a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, the central bank is unlikely to continue to raise rates into a recession. Right. Uh, I also think that the the current inflation that we're seeing is different than than um, what's been experienced previously in the United States and Canada. It's it's a supply driven inflation rather than a demand driven inflation that we had, let's say, back in the 1970s. And so, mm-hmm. if I'm right in that, I don't know if interest rates will be as effective in combating that as as they were back in the days when Paul Volcker raised rates to 20 percent to to crush uh, demand. I think that what we're likely to see is inflation starting to ease again when the effects of COVID on supply chains and so on uh, start to diminish. And one of the reasons why the, the supply chains have had such an impact on inflation is because over the last, oh, probably 30 years, 35 years, the world has moved to just-in-time inventory management, right? where basically yep. they're keeping inventory levels very low so they don't have to tie up uh, capital and inventory and are relying on quick replenishment, which is where the supply chain comes in. So um, the supply chain disruption would not have had the, the effect on, on inflation if it had occurred in the 1960s as it does now. Right. So I think a lot rests on the world uh, getting back to a semblance of normal, you know, with regards to the pandemic and started and starting to see uh the pressures on 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 supply uh movement uh uh easing. Uh and I think that'll be the biggest uh reason why you'll start seeing inflationary pressures ease. The I think central banks are kind of trapped in that I don't know if they've got the ability to raise rates to what were what used to be historically normal levels <laughs> without creating an enormous global recession because the world 
as a whole is just so indebted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the, you know, the negative leverage that's in place on even a small increase in interest rates is significant. Hmm. So I'm, you know, and, and, you know, I'm prepared to change my mind if the facts change. But right now, I have a hard time seeing how the Fed or the Bank of England or any central bank can get away with raising rates five or six times. But, you know, like I say, I'm, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll change my mind when the facts change, but that's sort of my current thinking. You mentioned the supply chain being the major cause of the inflation this go around. But I mean, we printed a lot of money in 2020. Uh, you don't think that the inflation's tied to any of that? You know what? I don't. Why I is that? We, you know, we printed a lot of money in 2008 as well. Mm-hmm. And people were expecting inflation back then, and it didn't materialize. Hmm. Well, one of the thing, uh, one of the things is that uh, inflation. There's an important psychological component to inflation. It's I, I don't uh, you know I don't subscribe that it's a it's a largely monetary uh, issue, or else we would have had significant inflation before now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a psychological component to inflation where, uh, as in the 1970s, people started to get the idea that if they deferred uh, spending, they would end up paying more for something in six months or a year. So they started to bring forward their purchases, whatever it was, a TV, a car, clothes, whatever. And that created that, that created uh, incremental demand, which in turn drove the inflationary processes. Ah. I, 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 I included a chart in the, in the issue of the Global Investment Letter that I did last week that looked at uh, how worried people were about inflationary pressures uh, over the last, I don't know, 60 or 70 years. And back, back in the late 70s, early 80s, 52% of people in the United States were saying inflation was the number one issue facing the U.S. economy. Uh, at the end of 2021, it was 8% of people. What? Sorry, did you say 8 or 80? 8. eight. 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 Really? Less well, than I 10%. Guess, I guess there's other things they're worried about. <laughs> well, that's right. And, uh, and so... Uh, until that number starts going up into the 30s, 40s, um, you're not going to see people, you know, re- consi- you know, moving up their purchases and and artificially stimulating the economy as a result of the, and and in turn producing inflationary pressures. So well, it's, you know, it's interesting that you make that that connection because then that makes it sound like the inflationary the large inflation in the 70s was also supply chain related if it was psychological and people bringing up their purchases and they're buying it, it, well it wasn't it wasn't it, it wasn't supply chain what what kicked it off was the decision by Saudi Arabia and OPEC to basically uh, triple or quadruple the price of oil uh, and that was a, and that the, that oil price shock because oil right. oil is a component. It was even more a component in everything back then than it is now. But basically, that that price increase overnight made the price of almost everything higher. Mm-hmm. And and then from there, 
that 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 oil price shock uh, had obviously a, a psychological effect on people, and and that in turn started to uh, produce the uh, the psycho- You know, when I look back on on the major uh, inflationary episodes, you know, in history, mm-hmm. most of them are not, or almost all of them are not, mo- sort of a purely a function of monetary. Uh, issues. It tends to be a loss of confidence in government, or um, a psychological expectation of inflation, uh, or you know, in the case of the seventies, you had this uh, this sudden price shock. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the, the there was an infl- huge inflation back, you know, in the last decade in Zimbabwe. Oh, yep, yep. Uh, and it was like, you know, it was it was like it was like the inflation that we saw in Germany in the twenties, where you know you could you needed a wheelbarrow to carry your money around. I was actually yeah. looking at a trillion dollars Zimbabwean bills just to buy one to have one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Of, yeah, and and the reason for that was uh, there was a complete collapse. And the confidence in go- uh, of the government and and institutions, mm-hmm. and and so people didn't want to hold, you know, the Zimbabwe currency. They wanted to trade it for dollars or euros or or what have you, um, you know. And and in Germany in the twenties, which is another famous uh, inflationary episode, mm-hmm. that largely was a result of 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 um, Post World War uh, One effects on 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 German morale and the German economy and and the political uh, and the political crises that allowed Adolf Hitler to ultimately gain power in the 1930s. So that was a you know so you know I I mean I pay attention to to uh, monetary policy and so on, but I you know I don't subscribe. To the notion that that's necessarily going to be um, the driver of inflation, uh, you know, if that was the case, you know, we'd have gold at like I don't know ten thousand dollars an ounce, uh, and you know, gold. You know, it, there are you know there are the gold bugs will will say oh, gold yeah. is the ultimate inflation hedge. Well. You know, I'm not even gonna. You know, I'm not gonna argue about that because it hasn't been for the last 40 years. But even if you still believe that, <laughs> the fact that gold, the fact that gold is is not moving, gold yep. is telling you, if you're a gold bug, that this inflation is te- is going to be temporary because it's not moving. Yeah, I mean, it's moving either. a little bit, but it's not <laughs> moving the way you would expect given the the monetary growth, right? Right. So. It's a wacky world we live in, investment-wise these days. <laughs> uh, speaking of what, Dan, I'm sure you want to ask some turkey-related questions. Now that we just talked about currencies, uh, yes, yes. Are you are you familiar with? Um, I mean, of course you are. Uh, uh, we've been following Turkey and their their currency uh, fall, and and what Erdogan's doing to to prop it up. Uh, could. Do you have any insight onto that that you could share share with us? Yeah, I, I am. I am. I, I am familiar. You know, I, 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 you know, I follow what's going on in Turkey because it's an important country, sort of given its location and 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 so on. Uh, I'll just make one passing comment that 
the Turkey uh, situation with Erdogan is a perfect example of what I'm talking about in terms of the effects of loss of confidence in in governments and institutions and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I you know, uh, somebody in his position, you know, I mean, you can try doing things like uh, uh, manipulating interest rates and so on. I think what might happen is, and historically what has happened in, in cases that we've seen in Turkey, is that at some point the government will issue a new currency and make oh, the old just- and make and make the old <laughs> currency make the old currency convertible into the new currency at some fixed uh, amount and and then and then hope for the best just basically start from scratch <laughs> well i you know i mean that's been done before yeah and uh, i mean that's what happened in germany you had the note geld and then eventually you know they eventually sort of you know re- basically recapitalized the currency or issued a new currency and and so on and it, it i mean it, this this has happened you know through history so that is an option that he could uh that he could take hmm. it, it is difficult though when you're dealing with matters of 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 uh in, you know psychology or investor confidence it's difficult once you lose it it's difficult to get back right without without having to Without having to resort to fairly extreme measures, yep. and and the new currency may be one of those things. Uh, Charles de Gaulle did that uh, during a a, um, a currency crisis in France in the late nineteen fifties. So oh. I mean, it, it it it's done, you know, not all the time, but it's done regularly through history. Make a good point too about the loss of confidence. Trust is a hard thing to earn. You know, it, 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 it really is in, in, you know, in all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. That doesn't add any fuel to my <laughs> beef with Turkey. Well, I mean, if they print a new currency, then we'll be able to say, ah, <laughs> caught you trying to it. save your currency. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was some talk about him. Possi- I mean, there's some speculation about cur- Turkey looking at uh, Bitcoin as a replacement. I think because um, he was meeting with the president of El Salvador. Anything ever happened to that? No, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I think that was just as a, a dirty rumor, you know. Oh, so, okay. Uh, I, 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 uh, I, I don't think. I don't think uh, that would happen. I don't think uh, Bitcoin is a sort of a solution for a national currency. You know. No. The IMF agrees with you. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think all, I think the big, you know, I, I think the big danger for people that do hold Bitcoin is that the very, uh, you know, the various central banks will just create their own digital currency. Yeah, and back, the, and you know, and that'll be backed by the by by the the uh, the government or the central bank or whatever. And if you know if, if that catches on in a big way, and it's already happened. In China, yep. then you know the value of Bitcoin becomes a bit problematic. Might have to censor that bit. I, mean, I got a lot of crypto fans that don't want okay. to hear that. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> just that we don't censor anything. You know what? The the thing is, you've always, no matter how you know, no matter how bullish or bearish you are on things, it's mm-hmm. always a good idea to think about. Okay, what's got to happen for me to change my mind? Yes. Um, like over the holidays, yeah. I was talking to a to a to a fellow my daughter is uh, dating, and he just loves Tesla. 
Tesla uh-huh. is, you know, it's, <laughs> just loves it. Oh, and, and, and that's fine. I mean, I didn't try and argue with him about it because I've got nothing against Tesla. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would say is that, you know, as I said to him, is that, you know, when you're that bullish about something or bearish, it's always a good idea to try and say, okay, you know, what would it take for me to change my mind on this? Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's something that I try and practice as well. And, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, I hope, you know, I hope Bitcoin goes to a million dollars. I mean, I've got nothing against Bitcoin per se, but at the same time, it wouldn't be a bad idea if you are long Bitcoin to be aware of some of the potential threats. Or to just, you know, get paid a little bit. You don't have to hold it all. Take some profit (laughs) when you got it. Well, you know. So uh, what would it take to change you into a bull then if you're, if you're still lean and bare these days? Uh, I, in terms of the, 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 the equity markets. Yeah. Uh, I would like to see, uh, uh, I would like to see a nice market, uh, decline, uh, that's coupled with a, with a real capitulation of investor sentiment. You mean you want to see a real sell off, not this just straight upward? A real, a, a big sell off, but I would also like to see an extreme of a bearish sentiment as well. And that would make, and that, and that, would make me, uh, uh, you know, uh, very bullish. And, you know, it's, it's going to happen eventually. Um, I don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, it's uncertain when it's going to happen, but it's also inevitable that it's going to happen. So you want, but you're talking about more than the recent drop uh, from yes. January yeah, to February? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm talking about sort of a bear market. Oh. And uh, and that would get and that would sort of clear the decks in terms of improving valuation and uh, and uh, once again the idea is too I'm I'm I would ideally a- attempt to catch an inflection point in terms of uh, bearishness on the part of uh, of investors and then go the other way when I saw the price action of the market suggests that you know, the bottom, uh, uh, was in, um, I don't know when that, you know, I don't know when that's going to occur. It's going to occur eventually. Uh, yeah. Um, but you know, that, you know, you just have to sort of, uh, you know, be attentive and, 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 and watch for developments. I certainly think that this decade that, you know, the 2020s are going to be very challenging for investors. They're going to be, I think they're going to be, it's going to be a very volatile um, a decade because of the the various economic and geopolitical catalysts out there for uh, uh, for uh, volatility, um, and we're, we started to see a little bit of that in January. But and that's I'm guessing where the uh, global investment letter can help people. Well, you know, it's got a not a bad track record. Um, you know, I've I've continued on sort of, you know, where I left off managing money in terms of my investment positions and so on. Mm-hmm. And um the, the results uh the results have been very good. I would also say there are uh, sample issues available for people to look at on the website. All you have to do is leave your name and email uh address. And that, and uh, you'll get access to the sample issues, and uh, you'll also get the uh, uh, the free weekly little email that I send out on on investing that you that you know you can unsubscribe to whenever you want. 
Um, so for people that are interested, there's a selection of sample issues there. Awesome. And that's at uh, globalinvestmentletter.com? That's right. And uh, we'll have links to that in the episode description. You ever think about doing a podcast? Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, you know, I uh, I, I don't know. I, people have uh, mentioned that to me. I, I don't know. Uh, I ha- you know, I'm uh, I haven't even sort of done a YouTube video yet. So, no, podcasts are easier because you don't have to do the video. No, that's true. No, yeah, you handled yourself well with us. I think you'd probably be pretty successful. You decided to give that a shot. Well, thanks very much. I mean, no, it's it nice talking to you guys. I mean, you made some good points, you know, like your point about the prob- thinking in terms of probabilities and some of the geopolitical things. I mean, you know, those are, you know, it, it's a lot easier to have a conversation with people that, you know, that 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 sort of, you know, make good comments and stuff. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Every now and then we get a good one in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had several. Stupid. You had several. I mean, you know. Uh, several. Ooh, all right. Yeah, oh. I know. What I can do is I've got a, a fairly large following on LinkedIn, and I've got a, a fairly large email list. So what I will do is if you want to send me, you know, once you get things edited and stuff, uh, a link to the, to oh, the yeah, podcast of course. and stuff, I'll – I'll certainly do my best in terms of uh, uh, promoting it and so on. Oh, excellent. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, actually, um, well, let's let Dan wrap this up and then I'll uh, kind of tell you what we'll do for you. All right. So, folks, there you have it. The wonderful award-winning winning Jonathan Baird uh, from globalinvestmentletter.com. Uh, check out their website. Like he said, you can you can get some sample issues uh, delivered to your email. Jonathan, it's been so great having you here in the shop. We want to thank you sincerely once again uh, for coming by. It's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Me too. All right. Any any final parting thoughts, Kyle? Uh, I can't follow that up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Why do you always want my parting thoughts when we talk to an award-winning money manager with 25 years of experience? Can, yeah, can do what he does, that? guys. Do what he can, does. Can you top that, Kyle? You got anything better? No. <laughs> Just imitate. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll be back at you soon, folks. Until then, happy trades. Bye, folks. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks in the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.